Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. And welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer, Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Todd Bellamy and Brittany Moore and Mizadri, for a follow-up or afterward conversation about our last podcast episode, which featured Dr. Mark Pimentel, the Executive Director of the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. Last episode, Brittany and I had a wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Pimentel about pandemic-related delays in care. Millions of people have chosen to delay healthcare by choice, and then millions more unfortunately had their medical facility to delay their care without a choice. And I think it's safe to say that we're going to feel the impact of these delays in cares for, frankly, years to come. So Brittany, let's get kicked off here. I thought Dr. Pimentel had a lot of interesting insights to share. What struck you the most? That's a really good question. There were a couple notes I took on really interesting topics. And the one that stuck out to me was his conversation around health equity and access to quality care. So in addition to growing in a pandemic or trying to grow markets in a pandemic, how do we ensure that patients have consistent quality access to care regardless of where they live? I think it's a really important topic. And there's one that, you know, I don't have, frankly, have a good answer to. I don't think if anybody had a good answer to, they would have solved it. But I think that some of the challenges that we did see in that data was that, you know, communities of color had were almost twice as likely to delay care in the pandemic. And then there was also some significant challenges to getting good care out in the more rural communities. I think he mentioned something about the traveling nurses really, you know, leaving the rural communities and going in search of higher paychecks in the cities. And then, you know, that was leaving where the rural communities were already short-staffed as it were. It really exacerbated a significant problem. And you're right. That, that's a really big concern for us. And then he also mentioned that when those nurses are going into those cities, it's driving up the cost of care because hospitals have to pay twice as much for for those nurses because they're also feeling the squeeze. So just further exacerbating the the staffing issues that we have. Right. And, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about the problems that were in the rural communities where you know, there's a, a less of an opportunity to even make an appointment uh, to see somebody, you know, even the NPs and PAs, you know, kind of moving back into the cities and, and, and uh, treating patients there, or excuse me, getting hired to, to see patients there. Uh, when you look at the the disparities in care for those patients, you know, it, it's exacerbated much more in the rural communities. But I, I do think kind of going back to why there was uh, sort of the delays, the, the pandemic itself. And so when you really look at the statistics for who was being affected and, and the the, uh, the breakdown of the different disparities of who was being you know, sent to the hospital with severe COVID, uh, it did hit communities of color much harder in terms of um, – just those, those poorer outcomes. And so if we get into a point where the people are seeing that on the news, they're much less likely to say, well, I'm not going back to that at the hospital. I'm not going to that a place where I can get infected. And so as that, it's almost like a, a, a cycle that, you know, you read, you see it on the news and therefore you delay care and therefore you delay care and you end up with a poorer outcome. One thing that surprised me that he said was how telehealth wasn't really 
helping that. That surprised me because he had mentioned that folks who, I mean, I really thought that telehealth would help address the limited access to in-person care for these rural communities. But he mentioned, he's like, if you're not going to your primary care setting or your endocrinologist and they're not touching, feeling, seeing you, it's hard to get that initial diagnosis. And, And Justin, you had mentioned that telehealth visits are better for ongoing care after that initial diagnosis. And I just didn't really consider the fact that the telehealth wasn't really an effective stopgap there. Yeah, that that actually caught me by surprise as well. You know, we talk about telehealth as this like wonderful panacea. It's going to solve all of our problems. And he had a healthy dose of skepticism about it or like, you know, it's good for ongoing care, but it's not so good for initial diagnosis. And that definitely caught me off guard. Yeah, I mean, even when you look at the data for telehealth and you look at the different specialties of where it has stuck in terms of uh, continued to to stay at a really high level, uh, you look at something like dermatology, uh, where if you look at the data for dermatologists, they actually did see a really large spike at first in the pandemic in, you know, March, April, May of more April, May of uh, 2020. But once that sort of petered out, there's like a huge, you know, thousand plus percent increase. And then it went down to still higher than 2019 for sure. But when you compare the sort of the the stickiness of telehealth for dermatology, it, it's almost the floor has come out and it's almost back. It's it's higher than 2019, but it's, it's much lower uh, than everybody else almost, especially for PCP or for things where you don't actually have to like look at a super close view of somebody's skin to determine, you know, is it cancer or is it, you know, uh, melanoma? So those sorts of things are, you know, you do see really large ebbs and flows of telehealth for certain specialties. And in that, that first visit where you have to make a real determination, some of those hands-on specialties, they really have to be in the office for. And what was interesting to kind of connect some of the dots, you know, so we had Dan Trencher on earlier this year from Teladoc, and we were talking with Dan about telemedicine as really good for mental health and psychiatry. And I was thinking back to some of the things that Dr. Pimentel said. He talked about homelessness and how he said, you know, there's homelessness because patients can't get medication and then they have mental disease and they can't get treated. Well, if you're homeless, you don't have a computer. So virtual care isn't really an option for you. And then if you think about in the pandemic, as facilities were shutting down, there was no place physical or virtual for people like this to get care. And so it kind of comes back to something you're talking about, Brittany, around, you know, the inequity or the inequity, excuse me, of healthcare. A lot of people out there didn't have any option to get treated. Yeah, that that's a great point. So even like poorer communities that may not have high speed internet for sure. We talked about that, you know, a while back. The the failure of the US to serve their rural communities and in, in building out more uh, access to to high speed internet. And so even people who, you know, not the dial up is is used that much at all, but you know, the people who just don't have that access whatsoever. So, you know, that that again, it's it's a cycle where, you know, the the pandemic exacerbated certain things, whether it's delayed care for mental health or other things. You know, if you had no access to a doctor's office, you sure as heck didn't have office, uh, access to a, a computer to try to access somewhere. And it's, again, it's also a question of of dollars, right? If you, if you can't afford, I know I've heard a million ads for online therapy where you pay a certain price and you can get free regardless of insurance. And so that's not really something that's available to every level of society. And he had mentioned that for that type of change and for us to be able to affect that population, it's going ultimately to come down to policy. And I I don't know that we're in a position as a 
country to want to address that, to provide that level of service for healthcare. Like you said, I don't know how we're, how we fix this. I don't know that we're gonna fix it on this podcast, but it's certainly worthy of conversation. Maybe moving to Canada. Well, that's the whole thing. Right? <laughs> I mean, we're not going to talk about. He, he was a big advocate yeah, for the Canadian yeah. healthcare system, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, socialized medicine. Yeah, I was really surprised by that. Right. You know, I know he was Canadian. Well, I was going to say he's Canadian, so it's, it's probably not as much of a a, a jump uh, for him for sure. But you know, we have our advocates. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Canadian? Uh, no, in theory, oh, in not theory, in uh, in uh, in. In some ways, yes. In some ways, yeah. You're Canadian. Uh, my grandparents are, are directly from Montreal, so ah, there we so go. I, I, I claim that as my my homeland of Got sorts. It. Well, you know, as long as we're talking about socioeconomic and political things, let's talk a little bit about supply and demand. Because my big takeaway from that was we are having a classic economic or macroeconomic or microeconomic. Let's think back to business school. I'm not sure which one it is. We'll just say economic change of supply demand curve problems. We have got a bolus or a bulge of a lot of patients with pent up demand for healthcare services, all waiting to go back into the healthcare system. And then you've got your declining supply of providers as people run for the hills. I am burned out. I'm sick of treating with patients. I'm sick of dealing with COVID. We've got over a million shortage of nurses. We are going to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of shortages of PCPs. I think our data showed something like 80,000 providers exited the healthcare system last year by not filing a claim, which is an astounding number. So I have got demand raising faster than we can think about. We've got supply going down faster. That is a recipe for disaster. And if my old economics training, and it's very limited, so my old economics training is there, I think that means constricted supply and exploding demand, that's going to drive prices up even more in a world where prices are already high. So that terrified me, for lack of a better phrase. I think it's, it's part of the problem, and again, not to reference our friends up in Canada again, but, you know, and again, they, they're having some of the same supply and demand problems they as well. they or we? Are you going native? What do you mean, eh? <laughs> uh, so when I when, when you think about that, it, it's, it's this way that we treat healthcare as a commodity. It's as if we are, are treating, it's this way that we treat healthcare as a commodity, like it's a, a jug of milk on the shelf. And, you know, it's not like we can just go, oh, let's just go make, you know, get <laughs> go back to the cows and, and get more on there. So you know, it, it's it's a problem because it's not the, the way capitalism deals with anything is a supply and demand problem. And so the state can't say, hey, we need to set a policy to increase this because it is part of the way that our economy works is, you know, healthcare is such a massive part of it. So I do, I do think that there is a is a tsunami of, of healthcare need coming and we have to get our policy set now to account for it or else there's – if we don't, then we're going to have this lag time. Oh, now we have no choice but to set a policy. And so if we, if we wait until the emergency is on us and it's on us, then the lag is going to end up with, again, that cycle of poor health outcomes. And so if we are able to get some resolve within us as Americans to say – hey, we do need a better policy here to account for this. In the next 10 to 15 years, we're in a lot of trouble if we do not try to set these policies now and go forward. So I think about what people can do and, you know, what can I do or what can you do? Like, we're not going to suddenly snap our fingers and have a lot more nurses and a lot more doctors. That's years and years of training, and I want them to get that training, believe me. <laughs> but I think if what everybody, and I think everybody on this podcast, even listen to this podcast can do, is you can get preventative care. 
Preventative care has shown time and time again that if you catch something early and get it treated, it stops becoming a bigger problem. Bigger problems cost more money. They're more difficult to treat. And frankly, you could wind up dying from some of that stuff, particularly if we're in a situation where we have a constricted supply of providers. But I think if everybody was a bit more proactive about the health, and look, I'm guilty too. I haven't been to a primary care doctor in you know, 18 months, so like I'll point the finger right at me. But if everybody was a little bit more proactive, we might be able to get ahead of these problems and theoretically suck costs out of the system through the actions of a million or hundreds of millions actions of one. I don't know. What do you think, Brittany? I think I have a couple of thoughts on this. I think that most of the people who are listening to this podcast are in a position of healthcare access privilege yep. who can afford, and back to the idea of capitalism, they can afford the jug on the milk. They can go get it when they want to. So yes, we we have to access that and we have to take care of ourselves early so that we do, we're do we not more costly later. But then also, as he mentioned, that this is going to be a, an action of policy is to engage with our policymakers as that privileged group to make sure that those who are less privileged and don't have access to health care gets access to health care. So we have to be more vocal about primary care, about health care, about access, about equity. All right. But you also could say that you know, you're right. We have to work on policy, but policy takes a long time to change. And, you know, I don't even want to go into what's going on in Washington, D.C. and trying to change healthcare policy. We're, we're not going to solve that. But your point about access and equity is really important. And you're right. Us, everyone in this room today, and most of our listeners probably are from a position of privilege. If you have time to listen to a podcast about healthcare and healthcare commercial intelligence and everything else, you're probably sitting in a pretty good spot. But let's take that home. If I don't get something treated preventively, I wind up in the ER taking a spot away from someone who might not have had the ability to get something treated preventively. So there has to be some sort of action and ownership over what I can do because if I'm not in the ER, that frees it up for somebody else. And maybe that's how we start to solve the problem. So I'll give you a good scare stat for for trying to go after that preventative care. So if you look at uh, the number of patients who uh, had metastatic colorectal cancer from 2019 to 2020, the increase in patients that had uh, metastatic, in other words, the, the cancer spread throughout the body because it was not treated earlier, uh, it was about 5% increase from 2019 to 2020. Once we look at the data from 2020 to 2021, so you're accounting for the people who just came in in 2021 uh, who missed out in 2020 because there was a massive decrease in the number of, of colorectal screenings uh, and um, colonoscopies in 2020, that increase was 12%. So that is a 60-something percent increase in the total metastatic colorectal cancer patients in 2021 versus 2020. So, you know, again, in the increase between those two, these, uh, between this uh, three years. And so, you know, that to that point, Get that done now so that you're able to not have to go through with metastatic cancer, which is a terrible, terrible outcome, which I'm sure I don't have to uh, explicitly say that. But, you know, it's just something to, to always keep in mind. And the other thing I was thinking of these three years, so it was, you know, again, it's it's such an incentive to, to understand, like, what is happening right now? What is the consequence of delaying that care? And so if you want to be more preventative – Go see your PCP. Go do the the recommended screenings year in and year out. In other words, that's a public service announcement. There you go. It was. We're exactly. heading into PSA right. territory here. Exactly. <laughs> yes. The more you know. <laughs> I want to ask a question about that PSA. We've known that. 
before the pandemic. We knew that preventative medicine helps prevent more severe outcomes later. Do you think that that is incentive enough right now? Do you think people understand that or people, for lack of better words, respect that, the outcomes? I I don't. And and that's why, you know, and that's the trouble with it, right? So even when we think about ways to, I mean, you know, Dr. Pimentel mentioned things about uh, outreach. They're in a constant state of outreach right now. And, And I think that that is... I think everyone's just kind of worn down over the last, especially the last two years. But, you know, I think especially with healthcare information, because we've been b- bombarded with all of these details about masks, the CDC, the NIH. Most of the country probably never knew what the NIH was until, you know, maybe a year and a half ago. So, you know, now people are oversaturated with healthcare information and, and it's almost like they're tuning it out. So we do have to find alternatives to show those. And, and I mentioned that stat is almost like, a, hey, quick scare tactic, yeah, a 12% increase as opposed to 5%, 64% more colorectal cancer. So FYI. Uh, Welcome and, to your doom and gloom podcast. Right. Well, but I'll try to be a little bit more positive, right? And so I look at what you were saying, Brittany. I think maybe we are at a different point. Like the world has fundamentally changed as a result of this pandemic, right? And people think about it differently. I think people are more aware of their health care and their health. And I think people are, probably have a bigger appreciation for their health. And maybe we take advantage of this moment in time when people do change behavior. We're not going to get everybody, but, you know. I scheduled an appointment with my pre-CP to get a physical. First time in 18 months because I actually felt guilty about this, right? Check you out. Yeah, there you go. I'm going to get checked out. We'll see how it works. <laughs> we'll see. But, you know, I think everybody has started trying to do what they can. And we're not going to solve this overnight, but we've got to do something about it. And I think that was the big message I took away from Dr. Pimentel. Do you know what I think would be interesting? And mostly this will end up being your job. I'm really sorry. Uh, if we looked at our data for commercial versus Medicaid providers, payers, and seeing the PCP visits and the frequency of them and perhaps those outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we could say definitively, <laughs> Ching. you know, like that? So we could say definitively that those who have access and those that could, should, and this is the, the gap of folks who aren't, right. um, kind of add to our PSA rainbow. That would be interesting. Yes, absolutely. And I do think, you know, when you look at Medicaid versus – and the Medicaid question is always interesting because of, of how it varies from state to state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that is absolutely something that we can look at and, and come back with on another podcast for sure. But um, I, I was kind of thinking in the back of my mind here as we talked about, like, what can we do? And we talk a little bit about policy and things like that. And I think that – when people think about policy, they think of a big policy like, you know, the, the ACA or, or like the really large uh, attempts at doing things. And I think there there may be a case now to do things more piecemeal. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's smaller little chunks of policy changes that we can make that, that do take can maybe with more of a stroke of a pen type stuff that we just, hey, just get this done, allocate money for certain types of outreach, which I know is already happening. But I do think that there are things that we talked about in our staffing episode, which talks about uh, the accreditation across state lines and things like that, just to, because again, we're talking about a supply problem. And if there are ways to make it easier for people to get into the healthcare industry, whether as home health aides, NPs, PAs, there will be a point in the next 20 years where your your primary care is handled by an NP or a PA. Like mm-hmm. PCPs are almost like they are now the new PCPs. And so 
whatever we can do to get to a point where we can accelerate the increase in those numbers, we, we again, like I said, we got to do that now. <laughs> yeah, there's there's an old phrase there from my days working at GE Health Crusade, helping people practice at the top of their license. Right. Right. And so, you're right, I think we are going to get a lot of our primary care from NPs. Uh, and you think about the CVSs and the Walgreens, you've talked about the retail yep. clinics before, but they're really moving into that primary care world. So yes, we have a shortage of primary care physicians. Maybe we get more people as MPs and nurses and you get your physicals there, people practicing at the top of the license and home health aides. And then, you know, to kind of connect it all together here, watch this. We are going to talk about Todd talking about how we can increase the supply. And I had an idea about how we can lower the demand. And so suddenly we'll be able to move our price point down on our old macroeconomic thing. See what I did there, Brittany? I like what you did there. So yeah. how do we get the people who are going to make this policy to listen to this podcast? <laughs> oh, I'm sure they're already listening. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. I, I do think the, the only other piece that that's I think could help accelerate those things is technology. And, you know, I, I've said this. This is my thing, right? I always say like, well, hey, there's a bright future ahead how we can automate a lot of this stuff. And I do think as those NPs and PAs come into the market, again, five, ten years from now, when you go see, you know, someone for your your physical, it'll be an NP with a little robot doctor, a lot, not a real robot, like a little mechanical man next to her or him or her, but a, you know, a program that is, you know, there's a lot of physician decision uh, management softwares that are out, the software that are out now that will be 10 times more powerful in 10 years. You know, th so that's the type of thing that I think will help us get or at least short circuit some of the the poor outcomes. So some of the provider decision support technology. Support technology. And right. I do think there is a role for the chronic condition management technology. Once, as Dr. Pimentel said, you had that initial laying of the hands, you feel the nodule, I think he talked about, and then you kind of diagnose the problem and then you use technology to maintain and keep people on that path. Because again, the ounce of prevention type thing. So I think you're right, there's a role for technology. I think we're trying to figure out where and how you deploy the technology. Yeah, I mean, as as we can miniature, miniaturize some of the technology too, you could, there are uh, trials now with taking a pill that actually circulates through your body and then gives results on what is happening in your in for gastro in your stomach or in your intestines and that sort of thing. So I do think the the monitoring of those chronic diseases is just on the horizon it feels like. Although it always feels like it's just on the horizon, right? For those listeners of a certain age, I'm reminded of the movie Inner Space. Yes. Way yes, back when. Right. <laughs> yes. I I I Brittany probably has no idea what we're talking about, but no, Go truthfully, Google I was it. thinking of the movie Big Hero 6, but I have a, a three-year-old <laughs> niece, so. There you go. Yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> good, good, good. So, you know, as a, we're shifting on here and think a little bit about this, you know, we did talk a little bit about how scary this is, and, and this is scary. But I really liked what Dr. Pimentel said at the end of the podcast. And he talked about it as rainbows, but I, I do think there's a rainbow element of it, and I think it's important, right? I asked him, you know, how do we prepare for the next pandemic or the next health crisis or the next earthquake or something else, right? There's a lot of fragility in our health system. And, you know, he talked about when, all the way back to 1917. And he's like, you know, we didn't have oxygen. We didn't have vaccines. Look how fast we're able to develop. And if you really take a macro step back, the, the speed with which we developed a vaccine for COVID-19 is like nothing we've ever done in science before. And I think we've learned a lot about how we can manage patient populations and how we can treat people. And, you know, now we're all coming back to work and this is great. And I feel like maybe we're starting to move towards an endemic situation in the world. Uh, and I liked really his optimistic attitude about how we're going to take these learnings package up and we'll do better next time, which I think was a really important idea. 
Absolutely. I think one of the big learnings, I mean, I wasn't there in 1917, so I can't really compare my experience Neither there. Neither were Ty. I, I, I was saying, are you saying that Justin and I were? No, I was just saying I wasn't. So <laughs> one thing that they didn't experience was the political divide of this delivery of healthcare. So I think that what we need to consider next time is how to depoliticize the delivery of this healthcare. Um, I don't think that we were quite expecting what we experienced. For sure. I So yes and no. I, I think that if you look back to like the, the influenza of 1918, there were anti-maskers and people who didn't want to like, again, that's the low information environment of 1917 is obviously vastly different than it is today. So you don't get the amplification uh, of, of voices uh, back then as you do today. But uh, I, I do think there will be, you know, I, I don't know if it's the shots that freak people out or something that, that causes it to go or is it if it is just a political divide. But, you know, I, I do think it's fascinating to think about Again, uh, sort of on that technology front, all the things we learn now from how we can manufacture mRNA vaccines and what else can they do for us. Mm -hmm. Like we have just proven on a large, massive, the largest clinical trial in our country of 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 using a brand new technology. Not brand new; it's over seventeen years old, so I shouldn't say that. But but somewhat newer manufacturing techniques to get stuff out faster. I mean, can we apply that to? Uh, the drug supply chain? Can we do, like, there's a lot of things we can say, wow, this worked great. Let's do this everywhere. So, And it's not only the, the science, it's also the distribution and the logistics of it, right? I mean, we got shots in arms relatively quick. And if you think back to, you know, when they first came out with the Pfizer vaccine, it had to be like in super cold storage and they figured out how to solve that. I mean, there was a lot of innovation and reactive and people pulling together as a community. I, I for one hope we don't lose some of that. I start to see us start to lose some of that as well. You pick up the newspaper every day, your digital newspaper every day, and you see what's going on. But I think there was a lot that we did accomplish and we learned from all of this. Absolutely. And we're going to need that to work through these pandemic-related cares coming up. So I think it's going to be a big yeah. problem for the next five years. So I mentioned the the metastatic cancer. That that was just for colorectal cancer. It's, it's similar for almost all of the, the different cancers that we've looked at. And if you look at things like diabetes, Coming in after the the time off, time off the amount of uh, of delayed screenings that happen, and people coming in for their first diabetes uh, diagnosis, they're coming in with more severe comorbidities. They're coming in with more kidney problems. They're coming in with more uh, severe diabetes that that need more, stronger medications, stronger treatment pathways, and so those also have you know, longer recovery times. And, and really, it's not even recovery because it is a chronic disease that ends up lasting longer. So, uh, and if you come in with, you know, any stage of, of renal failure, you know, that that's kind of it. And now you're in that that cohort that has, you know, much lower, uh, worse outcomes. So. so go get screened. Yes. Let's come back right. to that. Go get screened. Is that the title of the episode? Go get screened. Go get screened. <laughs> go get screened. Or go to your PCP. Go to your PCP. Yes. So. Keep them employed. <laughs> exactly. Keep them employed. But be nice to them so they don't get stressed out. And leave. Right? And leave. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. We need them. <laughs> exactly. Well, good. Any party comments from either of you two? I think this was a really good conversation kind of exploring what Dr. Pimentel brought to the table. I, I really enjoyed our conversation with him. Um, 
At the end, when you you tell our listeners to rate, review, and subscribe, I really hope that they also tell us if they went and got screened. <laughs> Let us know. In the review. In exactly. the review, yes. tell us. Exactly. But don't violate HIPAA. Don't give us any results. Just say yes or no. Right. Yes. 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 Exactly. Well, good. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us today for the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next week for a conversation with Kamal Kokanini and Dr. Rakesh Patel from Invite, a leading medical genetics company. The three of us will be discussing genetic testing, what it is, what to do with all the data that it's generating, and whether genetic testing is something that you should consider as part of your personal healthcare regimen. If you like what you've heard today, as Brittany just said, we would like you to remember to rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Be nice to your PCP. So to learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence and how it can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, get screened, and please stay healthy.